All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, here's what we're looking at today. We're looking at a chapter, a passage. We're looking at the second half of chapter 6. We did the first half last week that transitions. And so at the beginning of chapter 5, you had a discussion of church discipline and sexual immorality in the local church. And that affected the witness of the church and the witness of the individual. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you move to the taking law matters before unbelievers in court, which hurts our witness before others. The end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you transition to a passage that's on sexual immorality. And it tells us that sexual immorality is not good. It should be avoided, that we're to use our bodies for the glory of God. And then it transitions from that portion into discussions of marriage and other things. A lot of the ideas mentioned here today are going to be more fully developed as we continue through 1 Corinthians. Let me give you the layout of the passage. Then we're going to read the passage. Then we're going to walk through it. And again, This passage may be one of the most important passages, not sermons, but passages of scripture that you can get in your mind as you go through college, as you prepare for what God has you down the road. Here's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. He's going to give you an intro here, and in the intro, he's going to talk about two pieces of bad theology, two pieces of faulty logic, and then he's going to move in verse 15 to do you not know. Now, if you remember from last week, we had three do you not knows. He's talking to the people of Corinth who claim to be so wise, and he says, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? He comes back in this section, and he says in verse 15, do you not know? In verse 16, do you not know? And in verse 19, do you not know? And those are going to be our three points for today's message after the introduction and the two pieces of bad theology. So let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take a member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We live in a society that tells us you can have friends with benefits. We live in a society that will tell you you can have casual sex. There's no such thing. We live in a society where you have songs by people like Miley Cyrus, which says, we can't stop. It's our party, we can do what we want. It's our party, we can say what we want. It's our party, we can love who we want. We can kiss who we want, and I can't read the last line of that. This is what we hear in society. This is what we see. And yet Paul comes to this in 1 Corinthians 6, and he tells them, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. He starts off here with this kind of mentality. Uh, the mentality that says I'm saved and because I'm saved by grace, I can do anything I want. He comes with this mentality that says, it's my body, I can do what I want. You can't tell me what to do, I can do anything I want. And he challenges that bad piece of theology that's been taken to an extreme, and he tells them here, all things may be lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. I can go out and do things, and it's not going to cost me my salvation if I'm truly a child of God, but it's not helpful for me to go out and do those things. It, in fact, will harm me. It will hurt me. And if you're here today, and you're sitting here, and you are a blood-bought child of the living God, and you are saved, you can go out and do things, and it will not cost you your salvation, but it will not be helpful to glorifying God. It will not be helpful to you becoming a good citizen, a good Christian, somebody that is productive for the kingdom of God. And so Paul immediately starts off here and he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And then he says immediately after that, all things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Perhaps a better translation because of the play on words that's taking place here is that I have power over all things, but I will not be overpowered by anything. You know, we tend to think I have power over all of my bodily controls and functions and I can, I can do whatever I want. But you know, it's when we go to that computer screen and you look at that glowing screen and you give in to temptation and you think, oh, I've got control over this. I, it's in my power. I can handle this. And next thing you know, you leave and you go away, but you have to come back because you were enslaved. And over and over and over again, you come back because that freedom that you thought you had ends up being the actual slavery of being in sin and being in bondage before God. And it becomes an addiction that you cannot get away with. And what Paul is saying here is you think you have freedom. You think you have freedom to go do whatever you want, but that freedom turns into the slavery when we give in to sinful temptation that is not glorifying God. We'll come back to that. It says in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. So he's giving you this analogy if we were to lay it out. Food is for the stomach. The stomach's for food. God's going to destroy them both. So perhaps somebody in Corinth was saying, the body is meant for sex. Sex is meant for the body. And so that's good too. And we can just do whatever we like, just like the animals, right? Well, Paul takes that and puts a little twist on it. He says, food is meant for the stomach. Stomach is meant for food. But then when he goes to the next part, he doesn't parallel it. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so what he's saying to you here is he's not saying that sexual identity defines who you are. You're not created just for sexual actions. You're not created just for sexual immorality or to be like the animals just for reproduction, but that you are created and that your body is for the Lord and that the Lord was for your body. So he contradicts another piece of bad theology. And then he also does it in this way. Not only do our bodies belong to the Lord, but he says in verse 14, and God raised the Lord up from the grave and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And so here's what he's confronting in the first one. In the first one, he's confronting liberty. I have liberty to do whatever I want. I can do anything I please. It's not gonna be a problem. And he says, yeah, maybe, but it's not profitable. It's not God glorifying and you're actually enslaving yourself with your own liberty. In the second one, he's confronting dualism. 
Because dualism was a philosophy or a belief that said the body is evil. I can do whatever I want to the body. It's the spirit that's good. So anything I do to the body is no big deal. But what he's saying here is he's saying that's not the case. The body is for the Lord. And if the body is for the Lord, then he's going to resurrect the body just like he resurrected Jesus. And so there is no dualism. You say, wait a second, we don't have dualism today. I don't know. I think we might in some cases. We look at our bodies and we think about the body separately than we think about the person. Have you ever looked at somebody and you thought, man, she's really pretty. I want to go out with her. And you've never met her? What do you want to go out with? The body or the person? Are you separating the two? Have you ever felt like you had to have some type of plastic surgery or some type of makeover to be acceptable? Because you weren't satisfied with the whole person and you were looking at the body separately from who you are on the inside? I think there are times that we may have a reverse case of dualism from what they had in Corinth here. But here in Corinth, they're saying, I can do anything I want to with my body. It doesn't matter. Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. That's not it. Now on the theological side, hang with me for just a second here. There's a controversy over whether these are sayings of the people of Corinth or not, all right? Put a comma right there. Hang in here with me. Are these actual sayings of the people of Corinth? Here are the arguments for it. Paul repeats them four times in a letter. He does so with all things are lawful here in chapter six. And then he comes back in chapter 10, verse 23. He says it twice again. He starts these statements and then he says, but. It's as though some commentators think these are just slogans in Corinth and that's what he's expressing. And then that's what he's refuting. They're also short and they're pithy. So they could be slogans. But now some of the commentators don't think they're slogans, and here's the reason why. It's not introduced by saying the people of Corinth say this. When Paul talks about what Scripture says, he says, as it is written. And he does so in chapter 1, verse 19, chapter 1, verse 31, chapter 2, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 19, chapter 9, verse 9, chapter 10, verse 7, 14, 21, 15, 45, et cetera, et cetera. On Corinthian quotes... Paul introduces them in chapter 1, verse 12, by saying, each of you says. In chapter 3, verse 4, by saying, for when one comes. In chapter 7, verse 1, by saying, now concerning what you wrote. In chapter 8, verse 1, by saying, we know that. In chapter 10, verse 28, by saying, but if someone says to you. Chapter 12, verse 3, by no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says. And in chapter 15, verse 35, by saying, but someone will ask. So here's the reason I'm telling you this. Paul is not, in my opinion, addressing a specific instance of a saying that a person is using in the local church to go do an action. In verse chapter five, verse one, he calls out the person who's doing the bad action. If this were a specific action, I think he would call them out. Instead, he adds the words for me. And I think what he's addressing is an overall philosophy, an overall bad theology, the bad theology of dualism and the bad theology of too much liberty in Christ that's taken to an extreme. And so as he's addressing a generic theology or bad philosophy, so it applies to us too. If you're here today and you think I can do anything I want because I'm in Christ, it's not true. That's bad theology. It's not helpful for you. It enslaves you. If you're here today and you think, oh, there's a difference between the body and the spirit because the spirit goes to be with Christ, the body goes to the grave. doesn't matter what I do to my body. I can do anything I want to my body. That's dualism and that's a bad theology. The body is for the Lord and the Lord will raise up the body. He goes into his three do you knows. 
Actually, if we'd gone through all of chapter six, which we didn't have time to do, there would be six do you knows through that entire chapter. But here in this portion, he's going through three do you knows. The first do you know here is do you know, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And so the first point here is that believers are united with Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So here's how this works. When we repent of our sins, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then God looks down upon us and he no longer sees our sinful rebellion against him, but he sees Christ's righteousness so that we are united with Christ. As you look throughout the New Testament over and over and over again, you see union with Christ. As we are united with Christ, it is his righteousness that covers us. It is his blood that covers us so that through that union with Christ, we are acceptable before a holy and righteous God. And Paul is saying here to the people of Corinth, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. So shall I then take one of those members of Christ, one of those members of the body, and he'll develop this again later on in chapter 12 where he talks about his analogy of the body, but shall I take one of those members of the body and go over here and unite one of those members of the body with a prostitute? We say no. Paul here says, never You don't want to unite a member of Christ in union with Christ and then unite to a prostitute. Never, may it never be. It's kind of like what he says in Romans when he talks about sin abounds so that grace can abound. And he says, may it never be. This is not what we're supposed to do. Do you not know that you are united with Christ? And then in verse 16, he goes to a second point here. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now, I'm not going to go into an elaborate discussion of what he's talking about here. You guys get the point, right? Physically, you are joined one body with the prostitute. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now, that word joined. The word joined here means to attach together as though to glue together. As though to bind, to weld, to merge together. Anybody in here ever super glued yourself to something? No hands? I'm the only one in the room that's ever done this. I see one person with a hand up. Two, three, four. We're going to have, now I see several. All right, finally, honesty, I like this. Thank you. This side's the honest side. So when you super glue yourself together and you go to get unstuck, what usually happens? You lose a piece of skin, right? I thought about bringing super glue in here and seeing if I had a volunteer to super glue themselves together, but... I decided not to do that. Instead, I have every good country boy's toy, duct tape. Yeah, duct tape. Hey, if NASCAR can use it at 200 miles an hour, anybody can use it, right? Now, if I were to take this duct tape and peel it off and ask for a volunteer to come up here and let me stick this duct tape to the hairs on your arm and mash it down really, really tight, anybody want to volunteer for that this morning? Seriously? Come on. Did you shave your arms? No. All right. Are you ready? Which arm you want it on? You want to do this one? All right. Let's get it on here nice and tight. All right. Rip it off. Oh, look, there's no hair right there. That's really cool. All right, thank you for volunteering for that. A little analogy. 
that in a very, very, very small way, very small, those hairs will grow back, it's no big deal, right? No skin came off, there's no blood on the floor. In a very small way though, that gives you a picture of what happens when you unite yourself to somebody else that you shouldn't unite yourself with and then you have that relationship ripped away. You guys know this, if you've made mistakes in your past. You know that you unite with somebody because you think, oh, this is the one, this is the true love, this is the person who completes me, right? And then all of a sudden that relationship breaks apart because that relationship was never meant to be lasting forever. That relationship was just puppy love and it became physical too fast. And when it's torn apart, there's hurt and it's as though somebody wrapped your heart in duct tape and ripped the duct tape off of your heart and you're in agony and pain because you have allowed yourself to be joined to somebody that you never should have allowed yourself to be joined to. And this is the argument that Paul is making and this is the argument that I want you to get not because I'm trying to put rules on top of you, not because I'm trying to do some legalistic expectation, but because I want what's best for you. And what's best for you is not to be joined to anybody other than your lifelong spouse in marriage. That's it. You join yourself to somebody else. It rips apart. It says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. And then it says, for it is written in Genesis 2.24, quote here, the two will become one flesh. But look at the but in verse 17. And this gives us the contrast. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I don't even think I gave you my second point here. But the second point is that believers cannot be double jointed. That makes no sense, right? But what I mean by that is believers cannot be joined to a prostitute and joined to Christ at the same time and be in any type of a healthy relationship. You say, now, wait a second. We don't have prostitutes around here. This is Cedarville. We have cornfields, right? We'll come back to this one later. But prostitution is when you pay somebody for materialism for sexual favor, right? Those girls on that computer screen, you think they got paid? Those ads that pop up or that subscription you bought? Is that not compensation for some type of sexual immorality? Is that not prostitution in one form or another? So you take that girl from another school out because you wouldn't dare do this to any of our girls and you buy them a really nice dinner and you spend a lot of money on them and then you expect something at the end of the night. Well, you didn't pay cash on a nightstand. But is that not prostitution of some sort when you spend money expecting something at the end of the night? And here he says, if you join yourself to a prostitute, you become one flesh. You can't be double-jointed. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's the union with Christ. So what's the application here? Flee sexual immorality. The application is be Joseph, not David. Joseph. When he was in that first encounter, the first episode of Desperate Housewives, right? And Potiphar's wife came after him and he fleed and he left so fast, even left his coat behind. He was running out of his clothes to get away from the Desperate Housewife. What it's saying to you is flee sexual immorality. It's a command, it's continuous. It's there because it wants you to continually flee sexual immorality. So when that computer screen starts calling out your name, what do you do? You get out of the room, you flee sexual immorality. When that person starts making advances that you don't want, what do you do? You flee sexual immorality. You don't do like David. You don't stand on the rooftop and stare and glare when you should have been out to war in the first place. You don't give in 
and then try to cover up. Flee sexual immorality. It says in this part, I can't spend a whole lot of time here, but every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. What in the world does that mean? If we get drunk, you put alcohol in your body, your body gets drunk, it's not sober, it's inebriated. If you cut yourself, if you do other things, you could sin against your body, right? But what Paul is communicating here is that sexual sin is the ultimate form of communication. It is the most intimate form of communication. When I meet you and I introduce myself to you, I may shake your hand, I may touch your hand, and I may tell you something about myself. My name is Thomas. But when I talk to you for the very first time, do I share with you my deepest and darkest secrets? No. And if you do, that means you're socially awkward, right? You know, you come up and you meet this person. Hey, how you doing today? Well, I'm really not doing very good. I'm struggling with pornography over here. I got this issue and there's this girl that I've been going out. And... No, you don't do that. Because people would think, gosh, I didn't want all that. Don't dump all your problems on me, right? We share a little bit of information. We start getting closer with friends or with somebody that we're interested in. We share more information. The ultimate and most intimate form of communication between two people is the sexual relationship that most intimate form of sexual communication or of communication in general should be saved for the most committed relationship, which is marriage, a covenant bond in marriage. This is what he's saying. How do we apply this? Think about it. Just think about it for a minute. You meet this girl here at Cedarville and your number one goal in your mind is not, can I do this the right way? Your number one goal in mind is, can I get her over to the health science center, pull the couches out of the lounge, put them in a room, cut off all the lights and see how far I can get? Which happens on our campus. If that's your goal, you're not leading well. You're not preparing well for marriage. You say, wait a second here. Think about it this way. If I'm walking through life and every time I see a girl, I'm trying to see how far I can get. I'm sleeping with as many as I can. Every time I do that, I create a memory that doesn't go away. I create a relationship and a bond that it says is a one flesh union and I'm dragging every last one of those people with me till I meet that one person that God has for me to spend the rest of my life with and I meet that one person that God has and with all these other experiences and all this other baggage, I'm bringing it to this relationship and I'm saying, I wanna spend the rest of my life with you and she looks at you and she goes, what about all this baggage you've accumulated along the way? Now, if you're here right now and you have a bunch of baggage, Don't hear me saying that God cannot heal those wounds. Don't hear me saying that God is not gracious. Don't hear me saying that you're finished. You are not. God is a gracious God. God can forgive. What I'm here to tell you today is don't create more baggage. Don't have more of those relationships that you're dragging along with you. You say, oh, they won't affect me. Yes, they will. They're gonna affect the intimate relationship you have with the person that you're gonna spend the rest of your life with. Just like pornography and a screen will affect the intimate relationship that you have with a future spouse. And you think, oh, well, I just need to get married and pornography will go away. No, it won't. If you don't deal with the pornography issue now, you will carry that into your marriage and you will have to deal with it then and it will create a barrier between you and your spouse. What about leading well? Guys, you're called to lead. You say, oh, I'm gonna lead well after we get married, but I didn't lead well while we were married. So you go off on a business trip two years from now and your wife says to you, 
How do I know what you did on the business trip? And you say, honey, you can trust me. She says, well, I couldn't trust you to have enough self-control when we were dating. So how can I trust you to have enough self-control now that we're married? Oh, it's just a matter of timing. No, it's not. It's a matter of self-control and trust. If you can control yourself leading up to marriage to do it the right way, you can control yourself after marriage as well. What about your children? Yeah, you don't have kids yet, right? One day you might. And if you do, and that son or that daughter comes up and says, Daddy, you're telling me not to do this. How did you do it? What are you going to tell them? Here's what I want for you. Let me paint it positively for a minute. I want you to have a relationship that glorifies God in such a way so that it is so God glorifying that when people look at your relationship, they see that you are drawing each other closer to God and that you are exalting him and that your marriage and your bond is gonna be a picture of the gospel and that it's united and that it's eternally secure, it's everlasting and that it is unconditional love and that you as a man would lay down your wife for another, lay down your life, not your wife, your life for another and so that you would love her as Christ loved you on the cross. I saw some people getting up to leave and I wondered what I said wrong. Now I know, all right. (laughs) This is what I want. I want you to stand at the front of that altar. When those doors open and that bride's coming through in white because that white symbolizes that purity and for you to be so excited about that night because you haven't already experienced it 10 other times. For you to be so excited as the father who is the spiritual leader of his family brings the daughter down to the aisle and as the pastor who is standing there facing the audience says, who gives this woman away? And that father says, I do because he's transitioning that leadership over to you as to the future husband and he places her hand in yours and you say, I have led well leading up to this point. I will continue to lead well from this point forward. And then you two turn your back to the audience because your commitment is not to the audience, but your commitment is before God for whom you were created and the pastor looks at you as everybody else stares at your back because they're not the most important part of this commitment. The commitment's between you and God and that commitment is one that will last a lifetime because you've done it the right way. You've understood it the right way. You haven't joined yourself to prostitutes. You don't have an addiction to pornography. And when you come together, you come together as two people learning, enjoying, experiencing what God has created because sex is not evil. Sex is not bad. Sex is not something to hide. Sex is something that is to be glorified in that we should even thank God for when we do it God's way in the confines of marriage in a God-glorifying way, we are showing a picture of the gospel when we do it right. And that's what I want from you. Isn't that what you want for yourselves? I gotta continue on here. Verse 19, it says, do you not know, the third, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own, for you've been bought with a price. I've got to hurry, and I will. 
First of all, what this says is that your body is the temple. It's talking about you individually. It uses the word naos, which is the holy of holies, not Huron, which is the outer portion of the temple. And so it's saying that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the holy of holies. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon people. You see it in Samson. You see it in Saul. The Spirit also left Samson and Saul. The Spirit does not leave you. The Spirit indwells with you and seals you to the day of redemption. So when you go to that computer screen, you're taking the Holy Spirit with you. That's what it means in that first part where you join a member of Christ to a member of the prostitutes. It's the Holy Spirit who works differently. It says also here, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. This is the ransom view of atonement. You can see this in, in Athanasius and others in church history. You can see a response to it by Cyprian, but you can see it in a way that you probably would remember most in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Edmund eats, and then the white witch comes up and tells Aslan, the lion, he has eaten, he belongs to me, and then there is a ransom that is paid to rescue him from that, but that ransom is only one part of the atonement. It's only one portion or picture of the atonement, because Aslan says she did not understand the law. For the law is when a perfect sacrifice is laid down, then it will all be broken. And that is the penal substitutionary aspect of what is taking place. When the lamb that is the perfect lamb is slain on our behalf, he bought us. He bought our bodies. He bought all of us. So then we have a conclusion. What's your conclusion? The conclusion he gives you here. So glorify God in your body. The word here, glorify means radiate the presence and ownership of God. Radiate the presence and ownership of God. Let me wrap this up for you. Pornography is this prostitution with stealth technology, digitized with the precision of SEAL Team 6 as the devil's weapon to ruin you and your marriage flee from it. Glorify God with your body. Relationships as you form them should glorify God. And that's what we want for you to do. This passage, here's the goal. Your body was created for the glory of God, not for sex. Your sexual identity is not who you are. Your body is for the glory of God. Everybody just close your eyes and bow your heads for me for just a moment. So you're here today and you've struggled with that girlfriend or that boyfriend back home. You've struggled with pornography and you're going away from all of your friends. I just want to pray for you as we close because I don't want you to define your life by some sexual aspect of your life. I want you to define your life by how you can glorify God. So if you're here in the room right now, nobody looking around, everybody with your eyes closed, your heads bowed, I'm going to pray for you. But how many of you would say right now, I struggle with this issue? Raise your hand up high. I want to pray for you. I struggle with temptation. I struggle with lust. I struggle with internet pornography. I struggle with a relationship I'm in I shouldn't be in. Just raise your hand to God saying, God, I want to glorify you with my body. I want to overcome this. Let me pray for you. Dear God, I pray that you would be with our students, our faculty, and our staff, that we would not identify ourselves by who we are sexually, but we would identify ourselves by who we are by being united in Christ. God, I pray that a hedge of protection around all of them, 
Father, as they go home, that you would keep them safe as they travel, that you would keep them from attaching themselves to a prostitute or stumbling with pornography. God, I pray that you would help us to use our bodies to glorify you. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.